Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Welcome to Moms Running It. Today I have Matt Pendola. Super excited about this. Matt has a, a training facility called PendolaTraining.com. I have had the pleasure of visiting there a couple of times, and um, I even trained there with Sarah and Lupe, but not for a super long time, unfortunately, uh, doing running training. And Matt's one of those people that makes me realize that the, the degrees of separation are alive and well, because when you, what, first of all, Matt, normally I jump around in people's stories because I ask you for a little background information. Yours, I think we're going to go a little bit more chronological, which is, it, it, either way is good. What year were you born? 1973. Okay. See, I was trying to figure it out, and I thought it was 72. So I was born in 1970. And here's the interesting thing. I grew up in Coventry and Warwick, Rhode Island. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you were, where were you? You were in Providence in junior high school, but where were you before that? I uh, was in East Hartford, Connecticut for uh, some of my earlier years. And then I eventually went back there for high school because my grandparents lived there. Um, but I traveled around quite a bit. My mom was uh, a bit of a gypsy. We, we lived in Maine and uh, we, we also lived in Massachusetts. And uh, I mean, quite honestly, we, we lived out of our car for a lot of it. So, you know, we, we traveled a lot. <laughs> traveled a lot in those days in this situation is not the same as what people traditionally think travel a lot means but it was the same for me it was Rhode Island for 13 years but we lived in New Hampshire Massachusetts my mother was from Enfield Connecticut um, and then Vermont so interesting so you were born uh, in Connecticut and neither one of us have an accent which is usually why I don't think we're from the same place right <laughs> so uh, accused of having an accent earlier on, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, now I've lived out west uh, more of my life than I live back east. So, you know, I think I lost it over time. I hid mine on purpose because I was embarrassed. So <laughs> somehow I thought if people heard the New England accent, they would, uh, they'd see like my baggage or they'd, they'd, be, they'd know, you know, what happened. And so, right. so you live with your mom and you had one older sister, correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Okay. So you were six when you were living with your mom and exposed to a lot of stuff. What are your memories of that time? Yeah, I, you know, I, I definitely feel like I have to say first, uh, my mom was a very loving person, but, uh, you know, she was, um, she was addicted to a lot of drugs. She was, she was, um, you know, the original hippie and, and, uh, she did, uh, you know, enjoy, uh, you know, smoking pot like most kids, uh, at that time or most, uh, you know, young people of that time and era did. And then she started getting into, you know, acid and, uh, I'm, I'm sure there were some other things that, uh, I was probably too young to recognize and, and to understand. But, you know, the main thing I recall is, you know, I had a loving mother. Um, I always knew that she loved me, but 
that really was not ready to be a mother. And um, my sister and I, very early on, um, if you've ever seen uh, the show, um, I think it's called Shameless. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we were kind of in that situation where we're always kind of taking care of each other. And we, we pretty much knew that there were periods of time when our mother was incapacitated. And, uh, you know, one day we woke up, um, you know, we were in a teepee in Lake Tahoe um, by the river uh, that some people had shown her how to build a teepee. And we were now living in the teepee for about six months. Um, and I, I recall waking up in the morning and, and seeing my mother running around naked with a bunch of people. And we were in a nudist colony, apparently. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of memories like that, where I was just, I, I, did, I guess I, being a kid, I didn't really have anything to compare it to. I guess I probably figured everybody lived that way. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> well, you don't know. And, you know, when I, when I wrote the book about growing up, I actually did some pretty extensive research on the seventies and not that that excuses behavior, but there was definitely, it was definitely a different time period. Yes. Yes, it was. It's hard to believe, but it truly was. So you, your mom, actually, you were about six, left you at a bar. Yeah. A guy tried to bring you guys home. He did. Yeah. <laughs> he decided he was going to, you know, take care of us. And uh, who knows what would have happened if we had went home with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty scary thing also. But I, I mean, I remember spending a lot of time in the bar. Yeah. You know, uh, when I was that age. So your dad ended up getting you and your dad had remarried. And so he took custody of you guys, both of you guys then? Yes, he did. Okay. And then, so... From six, let's let's go from six to twelve. Okay, that was when you were living with your dad and your stepmom. Right. Yeah. So you know, my dad had just recently married, and he got custody of us. He had a successful business at the time, and I'm sure that all uh, helped his situation out, uh, getting custody of us. Um, but his his wife was, um, you know, about. 10 years younger than he was. And she was just barely, I think, out of college and really not ready to take on a couple kids. Um, I think my sister and I were pretty well-behaved kids, but uh, pretty, pretty quickly uh, it, it got abusive. And, and so um, I guess because I was the boy, uh, I, I took more of that. Um, she, she really didn't put a lot of that on my sister and I was actually really thankful for that. But, uh, you know, it was, it was hell. I mean, th there was a lot of hard times there where, you know, you're just uh, in elementary school at the time thinking that you just don't want to go home, you know, and oh, uh, yeah. Uh, the worst for me was I was really still close to my mother. And, and when my dad got custody of us, um, it was a brutal scene. I mean, she was tearing his hair out in the courtroom and going crazy because she had lost custody of us. And she knew that she was to blame for that. But um, uh, my stepmother had decided that we couldn't call her mother anymore. We had to call uh, our stepmother mother and, and uh, we had to call our real mother uh, Sharon. And uh, then, you know, when it came time for her to visit us, our, our real mother, um, she would just at the last minute um, say that we couldn't see her because we had been bad, you know, things like that. And so it was, uh, it was really, really tough. Um, 
you know, missing our mother the way that we did. And then uh, just dealing with the abuse. I mean, you know, I had my nose broken, my jaw broken, things like that. Um, you know, so how did dad not, did you tell him about it? Uh, you know, fall down the stairs a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so my dad was a functioning alcoholic. And, and so, you know, I, I, I do believe in, in his way that he loved us, but uh, he had always, I think, envisioned uh, something different for himself. And when it came to having a couple of kids, I think he just, he got, he, he got himself a wife and now it was her job to take care of us. It wasn't really his job. His job in his mind was to make the money and he was doing that. And so we saw very little of him. Um, right. that, he, again, it's a common thing back then. That's right. Yeah. And he's, a, you know, Italian family. Um, his father had always been that way and he was that way. Um, he owned a donut shop at the time. So he, you know, worked all night and then slept during the day. By the time we came home, he was gone. So um, I think it's fair to say that he went weeks at a time without really seeing us. Right. So uh, it's been so long, but I, I do, re I do remember that uh, our stepmother, you know, she would definitely, the classic scenario, you know, you would get abused in places where it wasn't as easily seen, um, except for the the couple times where it got out of hand and then, you know, then you could see it, but I'm not sure that my dad did ever notice it. Right. And again, I mean, those words functioning alcoholic, cause I, my father always held a job mm -hmm. always, but he was also was always chain smoking and drunk and, right. and in a fit of rage. And so I don't, I mean, I don't, you can function at your job and that makes you a functioning alcoholic, but you're not really functioning in life. <laughs> Right. And, and that's, again, uh, in that time period, that, that was so much more common and normal and mainstream than people realize. I mean, you tell your story and they think, well, how come no one ever said anything or made a report? Well, even if they had, that doesn't mean anything would have changed in the situation. And that's hard to wrap your head around that the 70s were just really a very different time. Yes. So you were 12. And you had an incident that was pretty, I'm assuming, quite pivotal in your life when you were 12 and you tried to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. So you, you were just in or going into junior high school, which are some of the hardest years anyway, kind of emotionally for kids, in this situation where your mom was a little out there but loving and your dad was functioning alcoholic and your stepmom was beating the hell out of you. So... What got you there? What, what happened with that? You know, um, my grandfather, who, who really meant a lot to me, and he was the rock, and, you know, he was uh, a veteran and, and a war hero, and uh, I've got his purple heart in my office to remind me of where I came from. Um, you know, he passed away um, of cancer, and uh, they believe it was probably from Agent Orange during the war. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden, I really didn't have that rock anymore. And um, so I, I went to the his basement uh, and, uh, you know, I, I put uh, a rope up and, you know, I, I tried to hang myself. It didn't it didn't work, um, you know, and thankfully, obviously. But uh, <clears throat> I, I think that it was more in that moment of. Um, of 
of trying to imagine what the rest of my life was going to be like that I just decided that it wasn't worth it. Um, and then, you know, I kind of took it as a sign um, of it not working that I was supposed to be around. Um, and so in a weird way, and I obviously would not want anyone to ever go through that moment, but uh, that probably allowed me to move forward. Wow. When, you know, when, when it didn't work, and, you know. Right. And right around this time period, um, your dad caught your stepmom beating you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he did. What was his reaction to that? Uh, you know, he was, I think he was pretty horrified. Um, and I think from what I recall, um, the transition was immediate. He brought me to my uncle's house. I stayed with him and he went through the divorce. Um, and I just, I remember going to my uncle's house and realizing that, you know, it was over. Um, and I had a whole, you know, different relationship with my father for a while. And it was really, really good. He spent more time with me. Um, I actually worked for him um, over that summer, uh, you know, 40 hours a week during the summer. And we spent a lot of time together that way. Uh, but then he, he got pretty depressed and uh, the drinking got worse and worse. And, and, and so unfortunately that didn't last long. And, and uh, my sister and I, we both kind of saw that my dad was really spiraling, you know, out of control at that point. It was no longer a functioning alcoholic. It was just full blown alcoholism. And, and so his, his business failed soon after that. And uh, we had to, move out of our, you know, nice home. And we moved into, you know, um, North Providence and, and basically all of a sudden we were getting used to a whole different environment. You had to be in a gang to survive really. Uh, or at least that was what I thought when I first got to that particular junior high school and, uh, that entire environment was really, really difficult because, um, you know, I wasn't, tough that way. I didn't know how to protect myself. I didn't know, uh, you know, even how to blend in with the other kids. So ju junior high was, was quite difficult. <laughs> well, and that's something growing up in Rhode Island, you know, it's not a city you hear about like DC or Chicago or New York, but it was, it was a different life if you were spending a lot of it on the street. And, um, both of us did that. And, and, and when you're kicked out of your house, you don't have a house, and you're on the street a lot, it was a pretty scary place to be back then. Even though it's not one of the more no notorious areas, it was pretty ghetto. Mm -hmm. um, and man, tough. And so in junior high school, um, is this where you met Mr. Gray? Yeah, yeah. Ah, this is this is where the story turns. Because Absolutely. up to this point, the people that were pivotal, I mean, clearly your grandfather was the most pivotal. Yeah. And then um your mom wasn't a bad experience or relationship necessarily, just kind of unique. Is that a good way to put that? Yes, yeah, that's a good way. <laughs> um and not not traditionally it wasn't traditional 
it wasn't a traditional relationship that the gypsy thing was real common back then. I, I have a bit of that in my personality as well. Um, so you're in junior high school, two of the hardest, hardest years. You have a grandfather who's now passed away, a dad who's spiraled out of control, a mom who's kind of a gypsy and um, at least loves you, but isn't really able to take care of you. Um, uncle, you were close to your uncle or? Yeah, I, I definitely got close to him uh, that summer that I lived with him and, and his family. And uh, yeah, he definitely was uh, a major influence on me. And I'll never forget, uh, at one point, my uncle told me to stop trying to make my father uh, pr proud of me because he said, you know, your, your father doesn't want you to do better than he's done. And that's <laughs> the truth of it. And, and that really stuck with me because this was his brother who, uh, you know, loved him, but was a lot of the things that he wasn't. And I, I certainly had wished uh, many times that my uncle was my, was my father instead at that point, you know, and I, I definitely realized that up until that point, I always thought that my father was kind of the, you know, a man's man and who you're supposed to be uh, as a man, just the roles you take on. And, I started realizing through my uncle that um, not all men were like that. And, uh, you know, and that he was, you know, strong and a, a really good father. But uh, of course, you know, he had a lot more emotional connection with his kids and was super supportive. And that's when I realized that, you know, my father wasn't necessarily somebody to look up to. Um, and that was pretty pivotal because, uh, the drinking, the smoking, uh, you know, the drugs, I had made a decision very early on because it was all around me and we're in Providence, especially. And uh, a lot of my good friends, I mean, I say I was in a gang and, you know, yeah, we were a gang, but it was, they, these were just confused kids um, with no real parenting. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't alone in that aspect. And uh, these guys were all getting on a lot of hard drugs pretty early on. Um, and I just made that decision. I wasn't going to do that. And, uh, you know, thankfully. So, you know, I think that probably my uncle had a lot to do with that. Right. I think some of us just have this innate sense to not go down that path because I was surrounded with it also. And just the decision that this isn't, I don't, I don't, you don't know what the right way is, but you know that this isn't it. Right. And so I never so I stayed away from drugs too. And I think also I had a healthy fear of what I could become and I didn't want to become that. So, so you're in junior high school in Providence uh, and there's Mr. Gray. So tell, uh, tell me about Mr. Gray. Okay. Yeah. So um, I had mentioned to you, but um, this was probably the biggest pivotal point for me when we were hanging out, my friends and I at the street corner and, I literally like it like you can envision it a bunch of kids nothing else to do hanging out by the 7-eleven um and you know this guy runs by and my friends start throwing rocks at him they think it's funny um and uh i admired the fact that this guy was working so hard towards something i didn't know what it was but i knew that he was you know working hard and i respected that about him it wasn't the first time i had seen him run by and uh, i wasn't one of the kids who threw the rock and uh the rocks and and the next time i saw him running by i just decided i would try to run with him 
And uh, <laughs> I still don't know why I did it, but I, I, I did it. And we probably ran, I, back then I thought it was probably a marathon, right? But it was right. probably three miles at the most that I ran with him. But he was uh, impressed that I had kept up with him. And he told me, if you want, you can run with me tomorrow. And uh, so I did. And Mr. Gray's was, um, turned out to be a master's um, champion in, you know, 10K races all the way through like marathons. And uh, he started giving me some advice on what type of uh, workouts to do and to get better. And, and then he, after a while, he told me, he said, you should really think about competing. So I, I, I started doing that and, and uh, I, I did well early on. And uh, Mr. Graves was in a lot of aspects, my coach. Um, and of course, there came a point where he realized that I needed to get out of Providence. Um, and he said, you know, you've, I, I had a race where I beat the state champion at that time by over a minute in a race. And he said, you've got to, you know, you've got to get out of here. You're not going to get what you need around here. And I've kind of taught you everything I can. So uh, that's when I left um, Providence and I moved to East Hartford, Connecticut. My grandmother lived there and the coach there was, had just been named the national coach of the year. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I did it. My grandmother agreed to take me in. And, uh, and, and so I started school in, in East Hartford, uh, my freshman year. It's amazing how pivotal something you think is so small can be in your life. And, um, so you, you moved to high school, you graduated from Hart East Hartford High. I did not. No, I, I ended up uh, graduating in Tempe, Arizona at McClintock High School. Okay. Um, and that was my senior year. Uh, and the short of it is, as soon as I turned 18, I wanted to be as far away from uh, my family as possible, to be honest with you. So I, I got in a bus. I went out to McClintock. I was 18. I signed myself into school and I graduated on my own so okay so while you were in Connecticut mm -hmm. that part of high school you lived sometimes with your grandmother sometimes in government housing with your mom mm -hmm. um, grandma was also an alcoholic yeah yeah she was um, and your dad and so you were on you were with friends or and their parents who took pity on you and tell me a little bit about those couple years yeah um, like you had said before, it's just amazing the people that you meet and you don't realize at the time that they're going to help you. Uh, and I just think that humanity is amazing that way. People really step in that barely even know you and change your life. Um, and I had a mother of a friend that really uh, took pity on me. Um, actually, it was two different mothers of two different friends. And I tried to kind of share uh, the space between the two homes as much as I could. So I wasn't too much of a burden on either one, but, uh, neither one of these families had a lot of money and yet they always fed me. Uh, they always made sure that I had a home and it was, um, it's even tough to talk about now, but it was mm -hmm. an incredible, uh, you know, experience to, to know how much people are willing to help you, even when they don't have a lot that they can give, they'll still give you what they have. Um, and so both of those um, families, I'm forever in debt to. Um, 
and uh, so that was the Segueras uh, and uh, the Cams, and and uh, they were really, really pivotal for me because it it taught me that um, if I was willing to do the right thing, if I was willing to uh, just give my best, that uh, people would help me, and that I wasn't really on my own. And they believed in me. So, you know, that really changed my outlook um, because before that, I felt like I was really on my own much through high school. Um, and, you know, I, I talked about my mother did love me very much. And I think it's important that a kid does feel loved. So I, I keep emphasizing that because I know that um, that made a big difference in who I was. But, you know, that being said, you know, she would take off for you know, months at a time. And uh, I think it was <clears throat> peyote uh, that was uh, <laughs> was really into at that time. And she wouldn't even remember um, a lot of times what had happened. And later on in her life, we would talk about what happened when I was younger. And it was like whole blocks of time that she just didn't even remember anymore, you know. Um, and so, you know, for me, I just found that I could still love my mother, but realized that she was broken and try to learn more from other positive influences and people that could really teach me how to survive. Right. So in all of this, um, you're struggling with learning disabilities. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about that and what that was like. Yeah, so, um, you know, going back to the stepmother thing, she was actually a teacher. Um, she, she went on to become a principal, um, it, which is, yeah. It, cool irony. <laughs> it, it, it is, it is. And, I, you know, she, back then I had these difficulties, but, you know, she just told me I was stupid. I mean, there was, there was no other way to say it. Uh, she told me that several times. I think you just end up believing it. Um, and I stopped trying. I stopped trying to do well in school. Um, but I had some forms of dyslexia and I had some, uh, you know, ADD difficulties. We'll, we'll call it that. Um, you know, and I, I say it that way because I think a lot of uh, kids um, are misdiagnosed. And I, I feel like I was never that person who was going to get on meds, uh, was never going to be on any type of drug. So I refused any kind of assistance that way. But, um, you know, it wasn't until high school where I really realized how much difficulty I had in just keeping up. And so, you know, I just took the easiest classes I possibly could and just figured, look, I've got to make it as a runner. And that's all I care about. I'll stay in school um, because I want to compete and, and uh, I want to get to a higher level, but I'll do it as an athlete. I'll never do it as an academic. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, having kids myself, I'm always excited when they're in anything athletic, one, because it's physical and it's athletic, but also because it kind of forces them to a certain degree to have a certain GPA or to at least um, work with their teachers as in situations that were difficult. And you did that. You had a teacher named Mr. Ellis. Yes. Yes. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, again, you know, humanity steps in. So 
he, he uh, was my anatomy and physiology teacher. And so, of course, what I do now, I can definitely link it to him. He taught me to love it. No kidding. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. I was failing the class pretty early on, obviously. I could not uh, memorize the way that the rest of the kids did. And so he sat me down and he said, look, you know, I know that you've got a difficult time, um, you know, and you're having a difficult time. I know that you're struggling, but if you want the help, I'll give it to you. And uh, so he started meeting with me during our cafeteria time and I had a you know, a, a zero period after my cafeteria time. And he would start to teach me about how the running muscles worked and how I could relate that. And as soon as he started to explain things to me the way he did, it clicked really quickly for me. And I, for some reason, that was the one thing it wasn't hard for me to learn anymore. I, I was able to really do well. And that's kind of what taught me too, that, you know, I don't know if I have, you know, a learning disorder as much as I just have to learn a different way. Absolutely. It took until I had a college professor finally that said, stop running into the tree and running into the tree. You need to learn how to go around the tree. <laughs> and I mean, with learning, we're all different, you know, we shouldn't have to, all learn things the same way and it doesn't make any one person smarter than another it just means that you learn in a different way and so i think we spend a lot of time um running into the tree and right it's a good way to put it yeah well when you said it that way i was like yeah that's what i feel like i feel like i'm just beating myself against the wall and then you do you feel like you're not smart and and that that has nothing to do with it so Mr. Ellis made that pivotal difference and you were running. Now, did you start having trouble with injuries when you were in Connecticut or did that happen later in Arizona? No, yeah, it was when I was in Connecticut um, and I had put so much emphasis on my running to get myself, you know, out from where I was, it was my way out. And so mm -hmm. I put way too much emphasis on it. I ended up running a hundred miles a week, you know, uh, when I was 15 years old, just trying to get to the point where I could beat everybody and get a, you know, a full ride scholarship somewhere. And it worked until it didn't. So, you know, eventually I was just constantly injured. And of course there was no money for physical therapy or I didn't have a strength coach. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I would read a book about Bill Rogers, you know, and um, his training, or Frank Shorter, or any of those guys, I, I would do those workouts just thinking that, well, if they do them, I'll do them, and I'll be as good as they are, you know, and uh, of course, I had no concept of the things that I coach on now, that I should be running 35 miles a week and, and uh, maximizing my potential at a young age. Uh, that's all I needed to do, but I didn't understand that. So I just did way too much too soon. And by the time my injuries, um, you know, got the, the better of me, uh, it really affected my running. So by the time I was a senior, I wasn't even running anymore. Um, so I, you know, I went from setting records my freshman year to not even running my senior year. And what, what's so hard for people to understand is this was pre-internet. This was pre lots of stuff. 
And there wasn't an easy way. I mean, we actually went to the library and looked things up in the index. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I checked a book out and had to read it. I mean, we didn't, we had a, this is the age of information. You know, we're inundated with information. And back then, we, we really didn't have a lot of information. You had to hear it from someone, heard it from someone, or check out the book, or have the whole set of encyclopedias that weren't too outdated at your house to even learn about this stuff. So it was, it would have been very difficult for you at that point to even get your hands on enough of the right information anyway, even if it had been out there. Right. So, so no wonder you injure yourself, you turn 18, you hightail it. You do not want anything to do with new England or family and you take off. So, uh, what what made you decide on Tempe? Well, you know, um, at the time, I really just wanted to get out of Connecticut. Um, and I had some really good memories of being out west when I was, you know, just five years old, even. And, uh, you know, even though they were very, very um, vague memories, I just it did feel like happiness when I thought about being out West. Um, and my mother always talked about living out West is so much better than, than, uh, you know, where we were at. And so I, I think that I just wanted to, uh, experience it and, and I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just wanted, I just wanted to get out. And I also, because I didn't have the opportunities anymore in running that I I had originally, I felt like if I stayed, I was going to end up like so many of my friends, you know, in jail, on drugs. Some of them had even died. Yeah. You know, um, one of my good friends from junior high school had OD'd and I just really felt like if, even though I had a conviction not to do that, now that I didn't have my running, that maybe I would get into those things. So I think I just wanted to get as far away from uh, that as possible. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from as far as that goes. Um, so you were looking for the nudist colony of teepees. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Okay, I want that too. Still, I'm still looking for it. <laughs> so you graduated, and then now you were living in your car, sleeping on people's floors. You ended up in San Diego. What happened? You graduated, and then what? Where were you living when you were going to high school? Yeah. So I got. I shared an apartment with uh, just, I mean, I literally got off the bus and got myself a job telemarketing because it was the first job I could get. It was, it really was a horrible job, but I do have the gift of gab a little bit. I was able to, uh, you know, get uh, that job right away. And it's funny because when they interviewed me for the job, I didn't even know what telemarketing was. And, and, and I walked out of there with a job. So, you know, I, I got the job and then I literally just looked in the newspaper for somebody who needed a roommate. Eventually I moved in with some college guys and, uh, and shared some rent. Um, I did that for a little while and, you know, I, I had a few years where I really didn't know what I wanted to do or, or how to get there. Um, but I ended up, um, joining the uh, AmeriCorps, the National Civilian Community Corps. 
And that was one of the best experiences of my life, still is. Um, and I remember that uh, they were talking about AmeriCorps as being an outlet for um, the energy of youth who didn't have uh, yet an idea or a focus on what they wanted to do with that energy. And I thought, well, that's me, you know? No <laughs> right? <laughs> so, Holy cow. I got in and I was really, really happy about, you know, the experience. Uh, it's the best thing I did for myself. We did unmet human needs. We did um, a lot of different projects where we would work on building trails uh, for the environment, you know, ADA accessible trails. Another project we'd be in a school. I'd work uh, with ESD kids. Um, and um, then, you know, we'd have another uh, project where we were, um, involved with uh, Flagstaff with a, um, I, get, I, I guess back then they were um, uh, calling, calling it a fire crew, but we weren't really a fire crew. We were kind of didn't know what we were doing and, and we just were there for uh, the experience. And over time, I got to know the uh, fire marshal and he opened up the world of fire to me. And then I was able to get enough experience where I got on to the Flagstaff Hotshots um, after AmeriCorps. And, uh, and, and that was my next step, get, getting into hotshotting. So, you know, it really opened up a lot of doors for me, AmeriCorps. And, um, you know, I had mentioned Jane Turpin. Yes, that's what, that was my next question. Jane Turpin was your pretty much like your boss in AmeriCorps. Yes, yeah. And so I started off as a Corps member, and then a few months into it, they were looking for team leaders. And the team leaders all had college degrees. I had never been to college, so I didn't think I'd get it. And um, I had... Um, another experience there where, you know, again, humanity steps in and Jane, she really believed in me and she uh, convinced people to give me a shot. And um, she started to work with me on how to lead the teams and, and what to do in, uh, especially with when it came to paperwork, you know, government paperwork, you can imagine. I, I had no idea how to do administrative work and she could have very easily just said, hey, you know, this is, this is on you, figure it out, that's your job now. But you know, she traveled to my first site that we were working with and uh, she said, hey, let's go out for a run. I know you like to run and uh, we got to know each other really well and she said, okay, let me show you how you can do this uh, you know, administrative work uh, because it is necessary for your job. And I was so dead against anything that had that it was even related to academics back then. You know, um, I just th figured I couldn't do it. So without her, I, I definitely wouldn't have learned how to do the the paperwork. And um, I was good at the working part, but not the paperwork part. So, right. you know, so she really held my hand and showed me uh, everything I needed to learn. She was really, really. Um, an important figure for me. And uh, I ended up being named the uh, team leader of the year for uh, the end of that year. And they, they gave me uh, that fire position that I mentioned before, and I got to pick my crew. Um, so I stayed a second year and, and did that. And, uh, you know, and, and without Jane, I, I definitely wouldn't have even made it through that first year as a team leader. Forget about being you know, recognized as a team leader of the year. It was really, I had the boss of the year. They should have given the award to her, but. Uh, 
Yeah, well, that's how it works sometimes, though. And and that, so then you moved to the fire and the hot shots, and you met your crew boss there, um, Paul Musser. Yeah, yeah. He was a tough guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, what did that teach you, though? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, Paul, Paul, he was scary, man. I mean, you know, you start working for a guy like that. He's been fire his entire life. He was. Uh, a crew boss for 30 plus years. He really knew fire. Um, but, you know, he expected a lot out of, uh, you know, his crew. And, um, you know, there was no such thing as slacking off for Paul. And I was used to working hard, but when you're working hard and you're still getting yelled at constantly, you just, you just think, okay, there's no pleasing this guy. Um, but over time, if you really paid attention, you could tell that Paul was the kind of guy who wanted to see you grow. And when you did that, he just gave you just an inch of support, but just enough, you know, Keep so you going, string you along. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so uh, I learned a lot. Um, that first, at the end of the first year, uh, he made me, uh, the head sawyer. So I ran the saws and I was in charge of the saw crew at the end of my first year. And so um, my second year going into that, um, I was in a more of a leadership position um, and Paul relied heavily on, on uh, me to uh, kind of come through Sawyer's lead the crew. So um, now I had to learn to really put the pieces together in fire. It wasn't any more about just, you know, uh, you know, grunting, sweating it out. You had to actually think about it and, and, and what the crew should be doing next. And, you know, that was, again, a pivotal part for me because I realized that, hey, you know, a stupid person can't do this, right? And, you know, and, and I still considered myself to be, you know, challenged that way. But yet here was somebody teaching me that, I mean, I got into hot shotting a lot of it because I thought, well, it's just physical. I can do that, you know, and, and uh, you know, between, uh, Jane and Paul, that experience, it might, it took a while, but I, I finally learned that, you know, I, I might have more smarts to me than I realize. Um, so, you know, that was probably one of the biggest steps for me realizing who I could be. And, um, you know, a guy like Paul, uh, he's not going to tell you you did a good job unless you really did a good job. So it really helped me realize that I, I, I had some potential. And in that, and working that you can work for anything you want, which followed you later when now you had just started physical therapy. Was it you uh, that was in physical therapy? I had um, done a lot of shadowing with uh, physical therapists just because I was really interested in the, in, you know, uh, in, in that as a profession. And when I was in, um, fire. I had moved over to a uh, full-time permanent position. I ran uh, dozers and heavy equipment um, in um, South Carolina. And it was at that time that they had said, hey, you know, I had gotten their physical records in hot shotting and in uh, engine uh, in, in the uh, fire uh, standards that they had, I had uh, was fit enough to get new records, and so they just said, "Hey, you should train people. You should be in charge of training our firefighters." So I started getting into the training aspect, and um, then I started taking classes just on my own to learn how to do it better. And I eventually realized that 
I actually enjoy firefighting, but I think I'm really much better at this training thing. So. Ah, okay. So now that makes a little bit more sense to me. So John Metzger was one of the people that you kind of shadowed then. Oh yeah. No. So John, he had, uh, he was somebody I ended up being his trainer. He was, okay. uh, yeah, he had been thrown from a vehicle. His shoulder had been entirely replaced. He couldn't lift his arm, um, above his chest. And so I had to learn, um, real quick, how, how can I help a guy like this, you know, just be able to reach for, you know, uh, food in the cupboard. I mean, he just, he, he wasn't looking to, uh, you know, set records or win medals. He just, he just wanted to, you know, grab the, the soup from the cupboard without being in pain. <laughs> so, right. so, I mean, that's, that's a normal thing to want to be able to do. Right. Right. And he's the one that, um, gave you a quote that you that you kind of stuck to these are pivotal people in your life basically yes and what was that quote oh yeah so you know uh john he he'd always told me that everyone told him he was lucky you know um you must be really lucky because um john had owned um a casino in reno um fitzgerald's Okay. And, and, uh, so, you know, he, he had quite the, the life. I mean, that you should have him on your podcast sometime because he has more stories than I do for sure. Um, and just a, a really, um, great guy. Um, his, his son was JK Metzger. Um, and you know, uh, he's gone through a lot of hardships, John, but, uh, he always comes out, uh, the other side and, um, he, I just really respect him a lot for that. But he said, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity and never forget that. If you always remember that you'll always be lucky, you know, which is true. Yeah. So you, you were, you moved from hot shots to Reno. Is that how it happened? Yeah, I had um, moved to, uh, from Hot Shots over to uh, that full-time permanent position, which everybody kind of wants in fire. And, um, you know, that's when I was on an engine crew and I was running heavy equipment, uh, the dozers and whatnot. And then they moved me to Truckee and I was on an engine there and uh, they were training me to be an engine captain when that captain retired. Um, but that's exactly what made me realize that this is really not what I want to do for a living. I felt like, um, you know, this would be the next step for me logically because it was a good job. You, you know, you had full benefits, everything was there, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't love it. And thinking to myself, I'm supposed to take over and be the captain. And, uh, it's not a, it's a job where you're working 60 hours a week, you know, and, uh, or more, and you got to love it. And, uh, I just realized that really I didn't, I didn't love it. I shouldn't be the captain. I, I, I love, uh, training everybody for the position, but I don't love the position itself. So, uh, that's what convinced me that I needed to, uh, break from fire. And that was kind of a big step because, um, my mother, she's passed away from cancer and that was, um, that time period. And so even though I was making good money, uh, because she had cancer and, um, she, did not have the traditional um, 
you know, steps towards uh, stage four cancer. Um, long story short is that uh, I racked up all of my credit cards, all of the money I had in the world went towards uh, taking care of her until she passed away. And so when I uh, left fire, um, I not only didn't have anything, but uh, I was uh, pretty, I was probably over $30,000 in debt and credit cards alone. Um, and uh, then I decided that I was going to go ahead and start up this business. So you, you can, great timing, Matt. Yeah. Great, <laughs> epic timing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. So that's when you, why Reno? You know, I just actually, because I was living in Truckee, it wasn't that far away. I was able to really uh, check out the area and I realized that there was really no gym in Reno. And I don't mean any offense to anyone who's had a gym uh, in this area, but I didn't feel like there was a gym in Reno that really addressed training athletes. Um, I felt like that was a, a good niche for me and I felt like it wasn't being addressed here and yet there was a big need for it. Um, so I basically felt like why not try to give it a go here, you know, um, it made sense to me and uh, it's worked out. So. And that was 2001, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that was 2001 and then you, in 2003, you ended up actually in a building? Yeah, that's, you know, the first brick and mortar. I mean, I had, right. you know, I was an independent contractor before that. And uh, I had a brief stint when I first moved here working at a 24 hour fitness. I realized very quickly that that environment was not right for me. Um, and so I just became um, an independent contractor and just renting out of gym space. Um, but then when I worked hard at just saving my money as much as I could between clients. I worked at the Gerber baby factory, just stocking food and just putting my money away. And, and I was actually able to pay off my credit cards. And then um, I saved about maybe another, I think I had $27,000 and I said, okay, now it's time for me to buy a little bit of equipment and, and open up shop. And um, that's when I actually rented my own place. Okay. Now, in the meantime, um, there are other people. So, I mean, your story's pretty, there's a lot of tragedy within the story. Mm. But then through all that, it's sprinkled with these people that really were mentors that really made this huge pivotal impact. And like we both talked about, sometimes you don't realize it at the moment, even if you appreciate it at the moment, but definitely over time, it's a compound interest sort of thing with these people who believe in you. So there were more people and you, you've been great at highlighting those certain jobs and those certain people and uh, how one step led to the next. So I want to talk about a couple others of those. Mike Stoker's one of them. He yes. owned Smile Shop for 30 years and he gave you a book. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, um, Mike, he started to um, ride with me. We, he wasn't a client of mine, but uh, we rode bikes together. And, uh, you know, he was one of those guys that he always had good advice to give. Uh, he was very much a father figure type to me. But, um, you know, he saw where I had come from, and he was really rooting for me to uh, have you know, a good life. And he really wanted that for me. And um, 
Mike, you know, as a dentist, obviously you can, you make a good living, but Mike has that life that everybody wants. I mean, he travels the world with his family. He really enjoys his, uh, his life. He's semi-retired, you know, kind of works when he wants to now, but he's one of those guys that you just realize he's really uh, been smart about how he's invested his money. So um, he started telling me, look, you don't need to make a lot of money uh, to have a lot of money. And, and he gave me a book called The Wealthy Barber. And um, I, at the time, I just said, you know, Mike, I'm, I'm not making enough money to invest money. I'm barely making my rent, barely. And the truth of it is, when I first opened up, you know, my first Pandola training, um, I mean, I, I lived in, I lived in the gym. I, I literally lived in there. I would, I would drive my truck inside the gym <laughs> and, uh, and, and slept under the stairs, you know, um, that's, I didn't have money for anything else. And so Mike said, well, I, I tell you what, I'll, st I'm going to start training with you because I need, I need to train, but you're going to take that money that I'm paying you and you're, you're going to invest it because you're telling me that you don't have any extra money, but you are making the rent barely, but you're doing it. So you don't really need this money I'm giving you. Not really. So he was uh -huh. right. That's that. And of course, you know, Mike's that kind of guy where I, I think he needed a trainer, but I think he want, you know, he also really wanted to, you know, help. And so I, uh, I, I did what he, I honored that. He set up uh, a Vanguard account for me. Um, he set it all up for me. All I had to do was put the money in. And I have been doing that ever since. And so he was financially able to prove a point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Very good. But what a great lesson. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I can't thank him enough for that. And then this is my favorite thing, and it's your gym mantra, and I know why, because <laughs> I can't, you can't complain if you have this as your motto, okay? <laughs> there is no hill for a climber. Yeah. Oh, well, that, that takes out all my complaints, right? My ability to complain. Complain, yeah. that was from uh, Les. Yes, yes. So he was actually your first, client for um pendola training 15 years ago and still now and even though he's not an athlete and he's 75 yeah he'll always train him so tell me a little bit about him yeah he was he's the only good thing that came out of 24 fitness he, i i met him there uh, he had had two heart attacks um and a knee replacement nobody wanted to touch him and uh you know um I started training him there the first year. Everything had to be really, really controlled. Um, I wouldn't let him do a single workout without having a heart rate monitor on, you know, and we really, really took our time progressing. And, uh, Les was one of those guys. He just wanted to be able to go out and hunt. He, he didn't, he didn't really even want to be in the gym, but his insurance had said, look, we're not going to insure you. Um, anymore because uh you know you've had two heart attacks now um so he had to prove to the doctors that uh he was insurable so that was his whole incentive so he'd go hunting again he's a world-class hunter and so i you know i didn't know anything about hunting i grew up in cities you know but uh it was it was you know really really the most 
probably pivotal point for, for me. We've talked a lot, a lot about a lot of very important people in my life, but um, I would call Les my father now. Um, and we bonded. And when it came to, you know, how much I was willing to do for him to help him, uh, you know, get healthy and realize that it was more than just hunting that we needed to do these things for it. It, it, it was, he gave just as much back to me every time. And he has had uh, an incredible life. Again, another guy you should really interview. Uh, All you, right. You're going to, you're going to become my new podcast PR agent here. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, Les had been on his own since 15. Um, and he ended up, uh, he has Nesbit construction. That's his company. Uh, he ended up creating all of his own success completely on his own. Um, and really old school guy, but here was a guy who really lived that mantra. There's no hill for a climber. And every time I was frustrated with the business, he would just remind me, I didn't make any money for my, the first 10 years, Matt. So what, what do you expect? Do you expect this just to be given to you? It's not going to be given to you. It's the war of attrition. If you really want to do this, you know? And so one day I was so frustrated because, you know, I had, you know, just barely made the rent again. I didn't have, I didn't have money to, you know, go out and get a coffee. You know, I was, I was just really frustrated. And I said, Les, you know, just, just remind me again, why, why am I doing this? You know? And he said, you know, Matt, there was a guy that I knew that he just loved taking out the garbage. And I was like, what do you mean? Love taking out the garbage? He's like, this guy loved taking out the garbage. I don't know why, but he did. And he said, and one day he owned his own dump. Right. And so I, I just, you know, and of course he's just telling me a story and the, the end result of that is, Hey, you know, do what you love and the rest will follow and, you know, quit complaining about it. If you keep working at it, it'll work out. And, you know, what I realized uh, later is that he was talking about himself. You know, there was no guy taking out the garbage. He was talking about himself and it worked for him and he knew it would work for me. So, you know, uh, Les has really been that influence on me. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, when I have um, issues that are kind of beyond what I can handle and I really get overwhelmed uh, with life, um, Les is right there for me. And I realized that I was always meant to meet him. I was always meant to be influenced by him um, because I gained so much strength in knowing him. And so, you know, because of him, uh, you know, I'm at where I'm at, the business is at where it's at. And also, uh, he's a, a, just a phenomenal father and husband and anything I do right, uh, in that capacity, I feel like I I've learned the example through him. I try to be as much like him as I can. <laughs> That's amazing. And one of the things that you talked about, and I love the way you phrased it, at critical points in my life, humanity stepped in. And uh, what a beautiful way to look at that, those, those people and situations that stepped in where you know, you know without them, you're not sure who you would be, but you know you are the person that you are because of them and in spite of yourself and in spite of the things that uh, happened to you. And absolutely, humanity stepped in. And I love how gracious you are about giving that credit 
because I know coming from a similar background, there's a lot of work involved in it too. It's not just humanity stepping in or people. Um, you come kind of riddled with baggage from all of that that you still have to sift through and, and carry around with you. And it's how you do that, because um, certainly it can be used for, for good, just like it can be used for evil, like we saw growing up, the kids that got into the drugs and the alcohol in the same situation. So to not perpetuate it, it's more than not perpetuating it, it's going above and beyond and being more. And um, I love your graciousness for that. So the highlights for Pendola training, you work a lot with hundreds, hundreds of high school kids. Um, I actually have a tank top with your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the softest ones I own. I don't like to wear it because I don't want to ruin it. Because <laughs> Pendola training. Um, and the kids are our future, and you see that. You were that kid at one point, and somebody made a difference to you. I, I did the same thing doing foster care as you do training high school athletes. Um, you want to pay it forward and give it back and make some of those kids who are going to be our future just if you could just make it just that much better if you can it's a drop in the bucket sort of thing and i i watch you do that and a lot of them become state champions all americans nationals world champions you've worked with amazing names that in reno when you say them you know them um but you yourself in 2015, you were the Spartan World Championship for the Elite Masters Division. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that's not just like a, well, yeah, one day I was out and I thought, <laughs> why not try to be the Spartan World Championship? That was a pretty exceptional win, and I saw that last in 2015. And also the Duathlon National Championship runner-up, and you remember the U.S. team. Mm -hmm. So you didn't really, I mean, like you had some injuries and you kind of worked through them and you're pretty much badassing it on your own as well. <laughs> That's paying it forward. And then, so the, the last thing I want you to tell me about is Aaron. Yes. Um, so as a woman in a relationship, this is a, a, like one of my sappiest favorite things that you talk about. Aaron is your wife. And yes. uh, she, you, you told me she never let you give up on yourself, even when you're working double time, making no money, <laughs> right? Sleeping under the stairs. Um, and you guys get together because you got through that a lot of that together. And she, you feel like she believes in you so much and your dream. You get to spend each day helping people reach goals. Yeah. And. Tell me, and you have a four-year-old. Yes, Mia. Mia, and uh, they're fun. They're not. They're not. They can't spell yet, so you can spell stuff, and they don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about Aaron. Yeah. So, you know, I think like most people, um, I really didn't know what I wanted um, when it came to relationships. I'm talking and. You know, when Erin came along, um, I just, I knew that she was a good person. You could tell that. And uh, I knew that she was a hard worker. I, I, I could tell that we had enough in common that I wanted to be around her. But there was so much about her that I couldn't relate to. We've, we grew up um, a lot differently. You know, she has the most amazing supportive family. You, you can't imagine every Sunday 
you know, they uh, meet and have dinner together. And I, I really respect um, their family bond and how, how much they support each other. And um, I really always imagine being with somebody who grew up more in like a similar situation to me, you know? Um, and so, you know, when I met Aaron, I just, I, I felt like we had this immediate connection because at the root of it, you know, at the core of it all, she was all of the things that I loved about, you know, people. She is the first person to help someone whenever they're in need. You know, she doesn't let uh, anyone around her go without. Um, she always tries to make the world better. She's just one of those people as it, uh, it, as you are, Jen, you know, and, and, uh, I, I watched your video by the way, and, and, uh, read about you and it definitely brought tears to my eyes. So you're a very inspirational person yourself. Um, but you know, I realized, um, quickly that I needed a strong person in my, in my life. Um, and I was attracted to that with Erin. She's a very strong minded person and, um, she's willing to work for anything. And, um, she doesn't expect life, uh, to just give her anything. And so we had that in common, even though we had very different histories, we had that in common and, and we definitely built off of that the the next step for for me was you know the whole getting married thing and uh, having kids like that wasn't going to happen either because no you know no offense but i just you know i didn't think that uh marriage was so great not seeing what you know i had seen in my life and having kids like that didn't seem like such a great option either because i always felt like you know uh, you know, having kids was just a burden. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I thought to myself, you know, my kids will be the kids I work with at the gym, but you know, I, I don't have to worry about, uh, them financially. And I don't have to worry about going home and dealing with their problems. I can just, you know, help them, you know, while they're here, you know? So to me, that was a, a good enough solution. And then Aaron, you know, she had other plans. You know? <laughs> we always do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, she's, you know, and she, uh, I, of course, you know, slowly came around to uh, the possibility of getting married. And, um, and so, of course, we got married. And then um, she told me one day that she was, you know, pregnant. And, uh, uh, one of the things that I thought I had, uh, you know, kind of skipped there was having to be a dad because Aaron wasn't supposed to be able to have kids. Um, and so Mia really is our miracle baby. When she, when she told me she was pregnant, I said, I didn't even think you could, it could happen. She and, know how. Wait a minute. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, Mia was, uh, she was two months premature. And so we, you know, we, we had um, the first two months with her in, in uh, the hospital. And that was all uh, definitely um, an experience in itself. You know, anybody who's had a preemie, they, they know uh, when your little baby there, they just, uh, preemies will stop breathing all of a sudden, you know, they, yeah. And, and that's all just really, really difficult. But I knew the day we took her home that um, 
that everything was going to be fine. She was such a strong little baby. And, and uh, I, I could just tell that she was going to be healthy and happy. And, um, and it's, uh, it's been great. I mean, she's the love of our lives. And of course, I learned through Mia that, uh, you know, I can, I can be a good dad. And um, I don't have to, you know, repeat what happened uh, to people like ourselves, I think it's an important lesson that we can do things differently. And, uh, and of course, uh, every day that I spend with my girls um, is a blessed day. So I, I really, really am forever grateful for meeting Erin because, um, you know, she gave me a family. Um, I have my Mia, I have her, and of course, I have her very loving family who have all taken me in as one of their own. So I have a family now and, and I never thought I would. Yeah. I, I hear you there. <laughs> Huge success story, Matt. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I'm going to plug you a little bit. You're working right now on some training videos and an ebook on strength and conditioning for triathletes. And you're doing that with Bobby McGee and you're very fun. You're like, not the singer. <laughs> I wanted to see that video. And actually Bobby McGee who's the head triathlon coach at the U S Olympic training center. So you're doing some really amazing projects um, with some pretty big name people in the, in as for, for athletes as far as triathlon uh, triathletes go. You are Rob Wolf's strength and conditioning coach and you're getting interviewed there on the Paleo Solution soon. Mm -hmm. um, Pendola Training is still doing everything you set out to do back in 2001, um, giving back a lot to the community, training people that are athletes. Uh, and making sure that you do that, and you're very, very big, your philosophy on doing things injury-free. Not that I think coaches are like, do this, and you'll, you'll either survive or you'll be screwed for life. I mean, <laughs> I don't think coaches set you up to fail, but I think overtraining is so common. And uh, what I really appreciate about your whole training philosophy is that you work super – you go the extra mile above and beyond – to really do, you do the strength assessment in the, in Pendola training. Um, you do a lot about the individual person and no one fits into a box. It's not like, oh, if you're a female, it's 45 and you've done this before. This is where you go. You take a step back every time with every athlete that walks in your door and evaluate them head to toe as an individual regardless, and then work from there. And I, I kudos to you. I have great appreciation for that. So Thank you. Yeah. And you can find again, pendolatraining.com. You're everywhere. You're on Facebook and you can find all your social links and uh, all of that stuff. And I encourage people to not necessarily because you're in the Reno area, but if you're not in the Reno area to know what to look for in someone in your area. Yes. hundred percent. You know, running is such a beautiful sport. Um, and I know obviously it's a big part of your life and, I just hate to hear when people say, oh, running's bad for my knees, or I don't have the genetics for it. Um, you know, if we look at somebody's biomechanics and we get into a little further, like you said, um, everybody is an individual. And if we really look at their gait and we understand how they're moving and we understand what we need to improve that movement, um, and we take it slowly, we can allow people to enjoy their running, um, you know, well into 
uh, the twilight of their life. And that's, you know, to me, one of the biggest gifts we can give. I mean, going out and doing a trail run at sunrise, you know, that, that's something that everybody should be able to do, you know, and, or at least, you know, make it a hike. Right. So I, I do think that that's probably one of the most important things, um, that a facility like mine, uh, can, can offer somebody is, you know, like you mentioned before is not about whether or not you're a state champion in high school, but are you still able to run, uh, play with your kids, do all those things later on in life because you learned how to do it the right way? Right. I, I love it. Thank you so much. Sure. Sure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon. Hello, my name is Warrior Princess. Or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.